That was the sound of a cow just before it was killed inside a meat packing facility, later to be cut up and packaged for sale. This event occurs hundreds of thousands of times a day across the world. The scale of this slaughter is undeniably a feature of our modern world. Humans, indeed the vast amount of those who've left behind a record, have been killing animals for food since time immemorial. What is new, however, is the mechanisation of this process, the automated or technological killing, disembodying and packing of animals. The move towards both meatpacking factories and indoor intensive farms was pioneered by groups and individuals from across the world. The vast majority of them came from the West, of which arguably the most influential were a disparate set of Euro-American ranchers, farmers and industrialists. Between them, they revolutionised the way meat was produced, setting the template for the world we live in today, where fresh meat is abundantly and cheaply available. The US remained a trailblazer in developing intensive animal production and slaughter throughout the 20th century, introducing antibiotics and growth hormones to help produce bigger chickens, pigs and cows, as well as engineering new types of machines that maximised the saleable output from processed deceased livestock. Particularly during the Great Acceleration, that is, the quarter century following World War II, of unprecedented American-led growth, US meat companies, with aid from the state, spread far across the globe, bringing intensive methods to the Amazon, Europe, Southeast Asia, and Oceania. Today, the five biggest US agricultural animal businesses, Tyson, JBS, Cargill, Smithfield, and Purdue, are not only responsible for the deaths of billions of animals a year, that's right, billions, Tyson alone slaughters 37 million chickens a week, but they are also some of the world's biggest polluters. Take Tyson's ecological record. It is reported that the company dumps more pollution into our global waterways every year than the oil giant ExxonMobil. Clearly these companies and at large this industry needs to be understood and challenged. So in this, what is the first episode of Mechanical Meat, a podcast that looks at how animals became machines, we investigate the history of the industrialization of beef production in the USA between the late 19th and early 20th century. To help me, I speak to Josh Specht, historian of cattle and capitalism and author of Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America. This book has provided me with a great deal of inspiration for both this podcast and my academic work at large, so I definitely urge you all to check it out. Now, let's begin. So first I asked Josh about the bison, which declined in number from around 5.5 million to just 300 between 1870 and 1900. The bison are key to the story of beef production because the land that they had grazed upon for thousands of years was repopulated by cattle, which would later be disassembled in the Union Stockyards, Chicago's meatpacking district. We talked about the economic, social and racial elements of this Euro-American-led struggle to colonise and transform America's last internal frontier. The destruction of the bison was part and parcel to the dispossession of land from Native peoples across the United States, right? So, so places that had been occupied and used by Native peoples, um, a variety of them, uh, made, made possible in part full-time by the introduction of horses into the Americas, um, but there's longer stories there, but, but basically taking all these land from people who then are basically forced onto reservations with terrible land, with, with challenges to support themselves, and there's a, there's a great deal of human misery caused by that. Um, now, and, and then secondarily to that, of course, is that millions and millions of, of bison are slaughtered, um, and there's, a, there's, an, there's both an ecological and, and perhaps an ethical tragedy there. Um, and then cattle are introduced. And in the book, I refer to cattle as both a tool of and a justification for this process, right? So, so cattle are a way to put lands to use 
in the minds of, of, of Euro-Americans, and so that justifies taking land, and then they actually physically occupy that land. Um, and the other thing is that cattle and bison are reasonable substitutes, but, but cattle graze a little more narrowly in terms of the number of grass species, and so they can stress ecosystems a bit more than bison. Um, they emit a bit more in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, which might be relevant today. Not a huge amount more, actually, but, but more. Um, and so, you know, it, there is a story of overgrazing and pressure on plains ecosystems in the West in the late 19th century. But I would think first about the human cost and then also the cost in terms of the bison, which have lose basically their range and they nearly go extinct. They've kind of recovered a bit today, uh, but that's in part because they 80% of them have been crossbred with cattle to kind of maintain their genetic diversity as much as possible. What would you say were the main ideological underpinnings and motivations of those responsible for this massive transformation? Was it profit mainly? Was it a vision of transforming the land into something more useful? Or what about the racial element? Was that also at play here? I think profit and I, or some broad sense of opportunity is motivating a lot of people. To try to enter to, to become kind of cattle ranchers, particularly in the late 1860s or 1870s, a time when there's great risk in places like the Texas Panhandle. On the other hand, reading the diaries of these people, right? I talk about this guy Samuel Newcomb and his wife Susan. Their life is pretty miserable, and they're not, it's not like they're like living large or doing great, right? So, so there is some sense to them that's important to them as being part of a larger project, as well as to the kind of military officers who end up supporting them against native peoples, right? And, and, and so there, so first there's a profit motivation, there's an opportunity motivation, um, but there is this ideological belief, right? That goes back to Europe, it goes back to beliefs in biblical injunctions to, you know, subdue the earth and also to, to keep until the earth, but also to some extent subdue nature. And so there's a belief that for instance, putting domesticated animals on land is more legitimate or a kind of higher use than hunting wild animals. And so their Euro-American understanding of agriculture or animal husbandry is, is kind of further along a step in their minds of, of the civilizing process with the land than say hunting the native peoples were doing. Um, and then there is our certain kind of racial assumptions about that, that, that native peoples, that the bison is a kind of wild animal, animal for wild peoples. Yes, they fought savagely, for they were a primitive people, and self-preservation is a primitive instinct. Who maybe might learn cattle ranching, but they need to be kind of forced to do it. And so, you know, we don't, they don't know what's best for themselves. This is what's best for the land. We can do this. Um, and so, you know, I think there are material interests here on the part of the people actively doing this, but the ideology is really important because that's what makes the process tolerable to say the US military um, and Americans more generally. I also think actually to add one more thing, you know, basically the US military doesn't always support what these ranchers are doing vis-a-vis -vis native peoples, but because they share that underlying view, right? That, that agriculture is a more legitimate use that these domestic animals, they, they often, even when it's kind of could go either way, they'll side with these ranchers. And so that ideological underpinning is what allows that to happen. So you mentioned there the biblical aspect, which is very interesting to me. Could you expand a bit on that? And also, do you think there is an element of ideology amongst these ranchers and amongst the US military emanating from the Enlightenment? Or do you believe it's largely rooted in the Christian tradition? 
I, I think explicit, I think these people are living, in, I'll try to explain, but these people in some way are living in the aftermath of enlightenment thinking and logic, but they themselves, in terms of their subjectivity, are much more thinking in terms of this Christian, almost providential element, which is to say, if you read the diaries of these ranchers, right, um, they're saying things like they hope God will stretch forth a helping hand over this wild country, right? That, that they will some, somehow, with God's support, this land will be civilized. Um, and so they talk about that kind of imagery a lot. I mean, they don't talk so much about subduing nature, but in that mastery of nature, I think we can find a long tradition stretching back to in, in, within Christianity. Um, but so I think they think in those terms because many of these actors are quite religious, but, but there is a certain set of assumptions that I think we could, could relate more directly to the enlightenment. There's uh, the most obvious one being theories of civilizational progression. So for many of these people, and particularly policymakers uh, in, in, in Washington, DC, or in, in, in the West, right, they think there's a progress where you have herdsmen, right, like they, that's the beginning stage of civilization. Then you have farming, then you have towns, then you have cities. And so there's a lot of teleology to history or to development that I think is kind of shows an enlightenment understanding of progress. Um, and they view very much ranching as and the dispossession of native peoples as driving that process along. Um, and so I think that assumption also is part of what legitimates it. So I, I think there's a few different threads and I haven't totally disaggregated them carefully. I think there's a lot of interesting work to be done there, but you know, that's a, that's a great way to think about it. I think. What was the culture of a symbolic importance and in general, the habits of eating meat before the mass expansion and distribution of beef? so that it was available at all levels and almost constantly? Yeah, so if you think about it in the context of the US in the 19th century, I think there's two dynamics to, to think about. The first is before we get this kind of national industrial beef production regime, say, there's a lot of regional variation, which is to say in places like the Midwest and West, people are eating more beef, um, places like Texas, uh, and then all across the country, elites are consuming beef regularly, fresh beef. Um, and fresh beef is what Americans want as opposed to salted or cured. Um, that's going to people like soldiers, sailors, et cetera. But in terms of fresh beef, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, there's this regional variation, but also it's not really daily fare yet. It's kind of a special occasion food, right? So, so meat in general for, for both Americans in the 19th century and then immigrants coming to the United States, it's something you might have on like a saint's feast day, talking about say Catholics, you know, um, from say Italy or something. And then, you know, you might have it on like the holidays. And so the key transition is that becoming a kind of uh, sometimes food for the vast majority of Americans, particularly in the Northeast of the United States in a place like New York or Boston into a kind of daily fare where you expect it with every meal. And that's a kind of a symbol of your success and your identity as an American. And with regards to the demand for beef, was there a nascent desire for beef amongst the white American population? Or was this something stimulated by beef producers themselves? I tend to think it really was that there was a pre-existing demand. And once industrial production could match that, it was just like flying off the shelves. I don't think there was a kind of contrived demand story because there were these pre-existing cultural traditions around eating meat and fresh beef. Now that's not to say that once, you know, the big Chicago meat packers start selling all kinds of fresh meat and all varieties of meat, including canned meat and things, that they're advertising it and promoting the idea of consuming more. 
But I really think this was a case of because there was a special occasion food that now could be eaten all the time, there was just a kind of uptick as incomes rose and as availability rose. We'll return to advertising later, but for now I'd like to ask you about a workforce that facilitated the rapid transformation of livestock into individual meat products. Did consumers think much about the humans working in these revolutionary meat packing factories? People are kind of fascinated in the 1890s by the Chicago, Chicago Union stockyards and like the meat processing. So it's like there's like tours and people are going because it's kind of like a, it's like a wonder of the world to people. They can't believe the scale of this industry, the amount of cattle. Um, but by and large, right, they don't want to think about the human cost. They don't want to look in the back of the yards neighborhood where many meat packers work and see the poverty there. Um, you know, they don't, they, again, like we, like I had talked about in the book, right, they, they're fascinated by the disassembly line and the genius of, of how you process animals, but there's no, the worker is a little bit disappeared. It's like the steps and, and, and any machinery that might be relevant. I think in more recent decades, uh, people, there are definitely people who are concerned and thinking about work and labor in the slaughterhouse. Um, I think what we generally see is that basically the people looking out for workers in slaughterhouses are workers themselves and unions. Uh, but people are kind of asking some of those questions, but that still remains a minority. I think this kind of behind the scenes story is still pretty dominant even today, even as people are pushing people to ask more questions about the human costs and the ecological costs. Um, so the, I think people are, are it's, it's a factor people are considering today in a way that maybe they weren't before, but it's still somewhat marginal. On the flip side of that, you mentioned in the book this kind of macabre fascination with the plight of the animal, which I found incredibly interesting. Could you perhaps walk us through this story? Did the cow become less important as beef became more and more commonplace, or was there something else happening? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I think, you know, I talk about in the book this like weird promotional pamphlet for, oh, yeah. I think it's it's either Swift or Armour, but like they, you know, like you're referring to it, they like, it's all about like journey of, these animals and how funny it is that, you know, what's going to happen to them and they don't even realize. Um, I have a, a postcard made by Swift and Company uh, for a hog and it said, it shows a hog being strung up to get to be disassembled and says round goes the wheel to the music of the squeal. Um, and so there's this weird fascination before 1900 say. Now starting around then, but taking off in the early 20th century, people actually start, not the public maybe, but people who work in the industry start to conceptualize of animals as kind of machines or factories for making meat. So that's a kind of shift where it's, it's still an animal taking this industrial thing, but they start to really talk about how to optimize the animal's body itself for meat through breeding, but also scientific research more generally. Um, I'd say from the industry's perspective, that view is very much dominant uh, even today. Um, you know, in all the sources I looked at, from say 1870 to 1920, say, right? People who are thinking about the kind of ethical subjectivity of animal or ethical questions around animals are pretty marginal. There's the Humane Society talking about cattle transport, but still not a question of like, you know, is it right what we do to these animals exactly? And post again, you know, post World War II into the 1970s, I think starting with some early work, but taking off with, with Peter Singer's work on animal liberation, um, people do start to ask questions about the kind of ethical position of animals, and then they start to think about animals as meaningful moral agents. But I would say at the beginning of this story, not really, um, and that might be to do with the proximity of people to cattle and livestock, right? To some extent, our ability to have these affective relationships with animals is our distance from them as objects of production. Um, and then this thinking of them as machines 
along to now maybe this more effective way of thinking about even cattle. So that's a little all over the place, but I, I think about that question a lot because I think it's an interesting one. Well, that was one of the things your book really brought to my attention, this conceptualization of the animal as a mechanical object. What does this change in how animals were conceived echo in terms of wider transformations? Does it reflect that normal Americans and the economy at large became increasingly industrial orientated? Take my views on this with a grain of salt, right? Because I wrote a book about beef and what I'm about to say is I think in a way it does set a temper. <laughs> so, you know, people can, people can draw their own conclusions, but, you know, the disassembly line, what they're doing in Chicago, becomes the, the inspiration for Henry Ford's assembly line. So thinking about the mechanization, the automation of life, the industrialization of life, uh, the Chicago meatpackers are pioneers. So I think there is something to that. Um, similarly, what's happening to the labor process, although that's happening across industries in terms of workers, in the late 19th century, that certainly becomes a dominant way of, of relating to industrial production, even as to some extent in, you know, the, in the US, much of Europe, industrial production has moved elsewhere in the world. But that, that kind of model is there. So I think, you know, a lot of the what's created in the late 19th century around industrial beef influences American life and also just industrial capitalism more generally. So another one is this relentless cost cutting that the meatpackers engage in such that their profits come not from, you know, some sort of margins on, or they come from margins on units sold, but it's the quantity of units sold that becomes key, right? So they take a tiny profit multiplied, you know, by orders of magnitude greater than previous production regimes. And so that becomes an industrial logic. But the other thing they do is they always, they justify what they're doing in terms of the ecological cost and the human cost in terms of that low price to consumers. And I think of the meatpackers as pioneers in that, and that comes to dominate all of American life. So, so, you know, the idea that the benefit to consumer as justifying things, that takes off in all industries. It's a consideration today in um, antitrust law, its consequences for consumers. So that also is a kind of pattern of consumer identity and cost cutting. In the book, you talk about the advertisement of beef and how it appeals to a cowboy mythos, a cowboy mythology. Could you elaborate somewhat on that? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I, I, I argue is that because cattle are raised in rural places and cattle, now the Midwest is very important to the story of industrial beef, but because cattle are also being raised in new places in the American West across the plains and pushing westward, I think that the same time that's happening, that these conflicts with American Indians are happening, that, that cattle ranching and beef kind of gets woven into the country's DNA and at the same time that's happening, of course, this industrial production regime is taking off where there's these factories processing this. And that makes people profoundly uneasy, right? This idea of thinking about what the meat you're eating, having gone through this strange factory where hundreds of hands touched it and did tiny parts transformations to it. And so what they do even from that moment is they play on these associations of the meat with this first part of the story in ranching in the American West. And the other thing that's significant is unlike, say, uh, pork production or poultry, cattle still are raised at the very beginning of their life on ranches, right, outside in places that from a particular perspective look kind of natural. And so unlike um, hogs or chickens, which might live their whole lives inside a kind of facility that we would find deeply unsettling, you can trade on those images for ranching. And so you know, at the same time, the producers want to remain behind the scenes. They've elevated cattle ranchers 
as the center of the industry. And ranchers who often resent the processors because they feel like they're getting fleeced by them, they are obviously on board with this because they want to sell more meat. And so from the earliest kind of images of the industry, that's what's being put forward. Now, more recently, the obvious examples. Um, so in the 1980s, well, after World War II in the US, they start to create these agricultural programs called checkoff programs, where like a dollar from each head of cattle sold goes to this kind of common fund that will pay for advertising to increase consumption. I don't know if you've seen these ads, but like these ads in the US for consuming milk where there's like celebrities and they have like a milk mustache that was big in the 80s. And so that was funded by this. But it's the same thing for these where's the um, beef, it's what's for dinner ads starting in the 1980s. And so those are funded by the industry, largely by ranchers, but processors participate too. And again, those advertise eating beef, but you're never going to see a food processing facility, right? What you're going to see are happy people at the dinner table or cattle ranches. And so a good example is there's a, there's a famous one beef it's what's for dinner and it's playing um aaron copeland's like appalachian spring which is like this very western themed tune that's often like you're imagining the pioneers uh, you can go people can go listen to it at the same time the voiceover is being done by robert mitchum who's famous for playing all these western characters in movies you can have a great beef dinner in no time at all well, almost no time at all. Beef, it's what's for dinner. And it's like happy people at the dinner table. And so it's almost like you're getting both ends of the story without the big fat middle. That's actually the important bit, but no one wants to think about that. Bit. And so it serves everyone's interest to have this mythology of, of beef. And that's kind of been at the heart of how it's promoted. Again, to promote that industrial production kind of behind the scenes. Come on, Jimmy, let's take a peek at the killing floor. <gasps> Don't let the name throw you, Jimmy. It's not really a floor. It's more of a steel grating that allows material to sluice through so it can be collected and exported. Moving on to a different area, what were the environmental consequences of meatpacking factories in the urban areas they were originally concentrated in? Well, uh, in a word or two words, not good. Uh, so the first thing I'll say that's kind of interesting is Armour would often say that like he made his wealth off of waste, like the meat was less important than the byproducts. And so he actually, there was a late 19th century kind of ideology from industrialists where like pollution and waste was actually just like inefficiency in their production process. And that like surely in their minds by like the year 2000, there would be no pollution because everything would be converted to profit and like something good. Did not pan out that way as everyone listening knows. Um, but that was kind of the logic. But of course, even in Armour's time, that wasn't quite panning out. So um, they were geniuses about using as much of the animal as possible to make money off them. But there still was inescapably waste. Um, there was a lot of dumping in, so, so a good example to keep going. So around a lot of the facility in Chicago, um, the kind of, the, so the Chicago River um, and lots of these facilities had to be located near waterways for disposing of things uh, for one reason. Um, in this kind of southern bend of one particular, the southern fork of the Chicago River, became kind of known as Bubbly Creek. And that's because there was so much awful and waste and blood going into the water that over time it started to decompose. And the, it's kind of gross. The, the river itself would kind of froth and bubble. And so it would kill all the life in there. You wouldn't want to drink from there. Um, at times, these almost like 
Well, I, I don't quite know what they are, but there are pictures of people able to stand on the surface of the water. I think because these almost like waste icebergs or floats start to form and they kind of go up and then it's like solid. And there's like famous pictures of people standing on this, those chickens that would go on there to try to peck out things to eat. Um, and so these waterways just end up being horribly polluted until, until they start to try to clean these up, particular ones around in, uh, urban populations. Um, so that's one. Um, these facilities are major nuisances in terms of smell. And that's a, an issue today in rural places. Um, and if, if for people who don't think that's like a problem, they, they haven't lived near one of these facilities because it's actually totally overwhelming. Um, and so there's a lot of, of consequences just because there's so many animals moving through such a small space and it, it ends up clogging these waterways, killing these local ecosystems. Um, there are, you know, I, health issues potentially for people who live near those kinds of communities in those kinds of places. So yeah, so basically the scale of production means we're starting to see problems in terms of waterways and land dumping sites that Americans had not really had to grapple with before. Were these environmental effects on the city reasons for why after World War II meatpacking began to move into the countryside or was this more motivated by profit? Yeah, no, it was it was the profits. So, so to explain, maybe in a small way. So, to explain, uh, packing moves into rural areas, uh, particularly starting around after the aftermath of World War II, um, and that's for a few reasons. But, but the, to oversimplify a bit, um, trucking is is the key to this. So, when you have railroads, railroads are technologies of centralization because you can't easily move railroad lines. So, like wherever they go to, they're going to centralize in a big city. You're going to be doing your production there. Once you have trucks and highways. You can be flexible about where you go and how you distribute. And so it's easier to just move processing to the rural places where the animals are. That coupled with that the cost of labor in Chicago had gone up a lot because workers had successfully unionized meant companies in rural places found new opportunities. Now you probably are right that, that contributing to that cost in Chicago for the traditional packers probably was kind of compliance with concerns about pollution. So, so maybe indirectly in a way, um, but really it was the fact that like this kind of relentlessly exploitative, kind of brutally fast and efficient model that characterized Chicago in 1900 was actually getting a little bit better by 1950. And there was an opportunity now to make it even more aggressive starting in the 1960s in rural places. And companies like Iowa Beef Processors, which today is Tyson, they start to kind of pioneer that new approach in rural places. And all of a sudden the industry moves out of the city. So as meatpacking declines in rural areas and moves closer to the source of the beef itself, what were the consequences for the environment? Yeah, so I guess the consequences there are, I mean, first of all, I guess there's a shifting of just where the, you know, where the consequences are expressing themselves. Um, but uh, there's all sorts of, of risks because at the same time, the industry is, is, is scale is just ever increasing. Concentration is, is getting greater from 1970 to today. About 80, you know, these big firms control about 80% of the nation's beef, a little bit less, but similar majority of the nation's meat in general. Um, and they're concentrating these massive facilities, right? So, so it'll be like a few very, very large facilities. So there's risk, first of all, in the COVID pandemic. This was a major site of, uh, of COVID transmission and death were slaughterhouses and processing facilities. So that's a kind of risk to these communities. Um, and then all those impacts that we saw in Chicago, you know, I'm, I'm not like up on specific examples post 1980, because that's a little bit after I wrote about, but those, those kinds of dynamics are still there and in some ways worse. Um, then animal disease is getting to be a bigger issue in these big feedlots or in kinds of meat like uh, pork production or poultry, where literally if you work for one company, 
you can't live with people who work in a different facility. There's like in your, within your labor contracts because there's fears about cross-contamination from facilities. So the life of, and a life of these places changes. Similarly, there's um, the biggest challenge today uh, is particularly with, with pork production, but, but with all kinds of meat is uh, fecal dust. So there's so much animal waste in these places that then becomes airborne that that's transmitting things like E. coli to crops and also to people directly. Um, so, you know, anywhere where you have just massive volume concentrated in a smaller area, which is kind of the core of industrial production, you're going to have these kinds of challenges and problems. And it's really affecting these communities in, in, in quite serious ways, even today. With a view to improving our environment today, what are the main messages we can draw from this story of the industrialization of beef? Yeah, so I mean, the first one, you know, the easy question, the easy answer, which is kind of true, would be right, don't eat meat. <laughs> but like, I'm realistic, and the part of the point of the book is to think through how much our identity is connected to beef. Um, so like, that's not going to change in the short and medium term, but, but long term, perhaps changing the place of meat in our diets, right? Breaking that connection between success and beef consumption which I think is reflected in lots of places in the world, but obviously I'm talking about mainly the US, but so maybe, you know, making meat from the main attraction to an accompaniment as it is in some places in the world. Um, but the other thing I think inside from the book is this, this price dynamic where I say, right, it's so, opt everything in industrial production today is so optimized in terms of price that anything that will address these challenges is actually gonna increase prices. And the meat backers have kind of played on that for a long time. And, and to some extent it's true. So any attempt to ameliorate these problems is gonna actually ultimately increase the prices of meat. Now, maybe just modestly, but we do have to be realistic about that. So that makes it all the more challenging, but perhaps all the more exciting and revolutionary in its possibilities, because I think we have to think about ways to change how we produce meat um, in ways that might make it more expensive, but also make people better able to afford it. So the exploitation of humans and environments goes in hand in hand and a more equitable society would address some of that. Um, but that's a little pie in the sky too, right? So the last thing is specifically, there are places in the world where meat production is causing serious problems. I mean, deforestation in the Amazon being the best example. Um, and so developing international agreements that address these kinds of processes in ways that are sensitive to the fact that, that some people in the world can afford beef and some people can't, but addressing those things and also addressing how that relates to things like soybean production, because even if lots of places aren't getting meat directly from places like Brazil, soybeans from Brazil are getting into the global food supply chain, which is used for animal feed. So thinking through that kind of feeding of animals, how it affects these supply chains, I think we could start to identify places where especially greenhouse gas emissions are a problem um, and methane as well from, from cows directly. So I think it's, it's, it's finding a way to do that that will move the needle. But you know, the book is, is, it gives us a pessimistic picture on that front, but I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic about it. Um, but, but perhaps the best is thinking long-term about how we produce our beef and about changing our relationship to that food would be pretty important. And then not forgetting the human cost, right? Because I think too many environmentalists say, okay, well, we got to think about this one bit while like severing that from the fact that these workers who are dying of COVID in slaughterhouses, many of whom are in the US from marginal populations, they might be undocumented, they might be refugees and they're horribly exploited. And so thinking about how that connects, I think is, is pretty important too. All right, well, thank you very much for talking. It's been fantastic, a really interesting conversation. 
Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Mechanical Meat. Make sure to check out future episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Follow me on Twitter at patat underscore zonda for information on upcoming episodes. Bye for now.